0: Chapter two. If you would turn there with me, Colossians chapter 2, Start, starting at verse 6 through verse 16. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's word. Colossians 2, verse 6 through 16. who raised him from the dead. And you were dead, excuse me, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God let me start that again, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In our reading there for our text this morning, And if you would, remain standing. Let's bow in a time of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. The truth that encourages us, motivates us, and teaches us how to fight the fight of faith. How to be victorious and to be triumphant as Jesus Christ was triumphant on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that we would take in your word today, understand it, then apply it in right ways may it change and affect our thinking and our living may we be a testimony to others and may you continue to work through us to bring others to Christ in Jesus name we pray amen please be seated our choir will come with a song and then after their special our word of God preached today Sometimes as you go through a book or a series like this in Colossians, you, it's easy to go quickly over it and uh, miss some fine details. It's also easily, uh, it's easy to uh, become ingrained in the details and, and actually go through slow. And uh, so I'm trying to strike a balance between those. But today what I want to do is actually slow down a little bit and pull out some of the details of the richness of God's word that we find in this section. We realize, first of all, it, it says in verse 6, "Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, um, He wants us to be encouraged. He wants Paul wants his readers to, to, to understand and know Christ and then he wants them to live in accord, with who Christ is, and, and that's his, his focus. Since you have received Christ, or in that same way, you need to walk in him. And he tells us how we'll walk. In other words, how we can live this Christian life in the way that God intends for us to live. Now, that's really your full-time job. That's really my full-time job is to live the way that God wants me to live. And so each day, you and I need to be thinking uh, of how it is God wants us to live. And then, in, in, in accordance with Christ, asking him to empower us and looking to him to do that, because he always answers that prayer, Paul prayed that they be strengthened in christ and that they understand the fullness of the riches that christ has provided so to every believer christ has provided and he provides this strength to live victorious now you might ask the question same question i asked then why do i not always have victory it's no failing of christ it's not an inability to 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 reach that victory it it is a failing on our part to trust in christ and to walk as we have received him by the way what does that mean we received him by faith we walk by faith this this walk in in, in living uh, uh, uh trusting in christ is not just something we do as a ticket into heaven it's not just salvation oriented it is, it is our, our, our living and our walking. And so it is a sanctified, it's a sanctification process of, of learning to trust in Christ, leaning more on Him. See, before we came to Christ, we looked at, at believers the same way some people look at us. And they say, well, you know, living that life, you can live that way because that's for you, but it's not for me. In reality, none of us can live that way until God makes a change in us to to have us to be born again, and we fully rely daily on the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the secret, then, to to living? You know, how can you resist the temptations that are out there for all of us? Sometimes people think that, you know, God just kind of changes us magically so that we no longer uh, uh, have any temptation or have any desires. I hear people... uh, used to hear it all the time people with 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 um with a desire to 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 be drunk with alcohol say lord i pray you take the taste out of my mouth I say really is is that what god does no he doesn't remove the taste from your mouth what he does is he gives you another taste and he gives you the power to resist one for the sake of the other And that's something that you have to do each day and say, Lord, I'm going to count your blessing and and obedience to you uh, uh, of greater importance in my life than the pleasures of this world. Pleasures still have their draw and their lure, but we are drawn more to Christ and then his power is made available for us to live that way. It is possible for every believer. You know, we live in a culture that says, well, you know, you don't understand the drugs that are out there now. You don't understand the power. You don't understand the culture. You don't understand the, the breakdown of the family that makes it impossible for me to live that way. I say, yeah, it would be impossible if you, in fact, weren't born again but now that you are born again, Christ's power is made available to you, and that's beyond culture, that's beyond whatever, you know, you think these super drugs are out there that you just can't get away from. Sex is so predominant in our society that, that we can't resist. No, you can resist. In fact, there's a whole lot of people who are showing you that that's possible. That's the people of, of, of God that are living, and that's who you need to connect yourself with see how they do it and to walk as they walk. So, therefore, verse 6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, he goes on. I really want to skip down to verse 13. You there with me? And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He talks about our true spiritual state. Our true spiritual state. He says, and you. In the past, he says, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses. First thing I want to draw attention to is the past tense of that phrase. You were dead. This is the state that we began at before we came to know and to trust in Christ. Second thing is what that state was. He says you were dead. He didn't say you were a little unhealthy. He didn't say you were a little under the weather. He didn't didn't even say that you were dangerously sick and on the verge of death. No, he says you were dead. You and I in our state, before we came under the power of Christ, we were dead. There is so much truth that we need to understand from that. First of all, there is not a medicine available today nor a process available today that can make the dead live. There is none. In fact, we understand that so truly and so fully that we spend, we in our society, spend all of our time trying to prolong life. We 're trying to rid of all the ills the the, the the cancers, the diseases that take uh, uh, make sh- make our lives short and we, we focus on that we try to live healthy, we try to eat in right ways so that we can prolong because we know once death comes, there's nobody here that can remedy that and he uses this term not by mistake, not by accident, to describe our spiritual state we were dead it talks about the extreme of where we are uh, where we were and that brings to to, to mind that there was no human help that could could, uh, help us in our condition we were dead you know you don't set an alarm clock for a dead person right because it's not waking up that they need right You don't give medicine to a dead person because there is is no treatment that's available that's going to bring them out of that state. The Bible describes us in a place where no human being could possibly rescue us. Spiritually, we were dead. It means that we were separated from, from God and that we had no ability and no life to make a change in our state if something is to happen to a dead person, it has to come from somewhere else, not from themselves. It has to come from an outside source. And so he says, that's our state, you were dead. And then he talks about, that's our true state, then he talks about God's true work. He says in verse 13, and you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. God made alive. This is God's true word. What is that word? It says he made alive. He didn't restore. He didn't heal. He didn't rehab. He made us alive. He took that which was totally dead and good for nothing, and he brought it to life. It's a miracle. Paul wants us to understand this and appreciate the work that God has done. That's why it's such an amazing thing when Jesus says to to, to his followers, he he says to the Jews who were listening to him, put this body and you take this body and you put it to death, I'll bring it back to life in three days. That's such an amazing statement. He says, I myself will bring myself back from death. Nobody has ever brought anybody back from death, let alone themselves back from It says, God made us alive. I want you to notice how important it is that Paul describes the means of this great work. In other words, what did God use to bring us from death to life? And I want you to think about that, and I want you to to, to focus on that and meditate on that. As you, as you spend this week, as you go over passages like this, notice what he says. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And, and he, he, he brings an important aspect of this making alive. He didn't just bring us back to life to die again. He says he brought us, made us alive. And it says this, he had forgiven having forgiven us all our trespasses. He tells us how that happens. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. How did God make us alive? Now, he he uses two different um, figures of speech or, or ways to capture this great, idea, this great thing that had happened when he, when he saved us, when he rescued us. He uses one in the biological sense of making us alive. And then he uses one in both a legal and an accounting sense. That he canceled a debt. Now, y- y- you think I'm going to get deep but actually it's very basic. And we understand both of those terms. We understand what it means to be alive and we understand all too well what it means to be dead and unfortunately we understand what it means to be in debt right what what it means to owe somebody something and he's using both of those terms to explain both our condition and what god did in such a way that we couldn't do it ourselves so he says we were dead and this process of making us alive he describes this way he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Now, when when he talks about this this canceling of this record, sometimes we we, we can wrongly think that, okay, since God just canceled it, he just kind of spoke over it and said, okay, it's canceled, that's it, you're clear. And we fail to realize what's all involved in that. So God doesn't just say, okay, well, you know, before you owe me, you know, $5,000, and now I declare that you don't owe me anything. You're clear. That's not what he does. In fact, it's way more detailed and involved than that. Here is, and what ties us into that thought, notice what he says let me just read this whole passage in verse 13. You were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. There's something about this legal demands that we need to understand and how God came to cancel this debt and even what, what clues us into that is the next phrase in the next verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me just use a, uh, just a little bit of analysis of scripture in that last phrase in verse 15 by triumphing over them in him let's let's first break down who's acting here this is not jesus acting this is god acting this is what god is doing how do we know that well he says in verse 13 god made alive so god is the subject god made alive he made us alive together with him who's the him there's jesus God made us alive together with Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross. He was raised up again. And in that same way, God in some way raised us up again. He's going to explain what he did and, and, and how that happened. So it's God who's acting here. God made us alive, and he did that in some way through Jesus, which he's about to explain. That's important for us to understand. But in the process of doing that, look what happened. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, we've talked about these phrases, rulers and authority, throughout Colossians. And we'll also see it in Ephesians as well. This this hints and it, it tells us that there's something more to it. These rulers and authorities actually are spoken of as in the spiritual domain. And so we talk about Satan's kingdom and his power and his rule, that what God did through Jesus affected or disarmed Satan's kingdom and his power in his domain. All throughout Colossians, we talked about that. I joked about riding down 35th Street, and I called that the domain of darkness, right? God rescued us out of the domain of darkness. And we know a domain means uh, uh, a, a, a described territory that someone has power over. We know drug lords describe their territory. and You don't come into their area and try to sell drugs in their territory without some consequences. Well, this domain of darkness is a domain that Satan ruled over. And so he, he's saying that in some way, God, to accomplish this thing of making us alive spiritually, Christ was active in such a way that he disrupted, disarmed, dismantled, destroyed Satan's domain. His power and his authority that he was exerting over individuals. And so, um, it, it, then when you talk, so he says that in verse. 15 he disarmed the rulers and authorities and then it i'm gonna skip that next phrase putting them to open shame but look at this by triumphing over them so this is what god did god triumphed he had victory over satan and how did he do that in him that word in him sometimes is if you look at it as in him it's talking about christ but in some translations, it is is translated in it, referring to the cross. Then that God through the cross, which is Christ Himself, so it's the same explanation. Through the cross, through Jesus Christ, God got victory over Satan and his domain. Now let's go back to those, uh, to that 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 uh, uh, accounting explanation and that debt explanation. He canceled our debt debt and tie those together because it's it's it it it, it can be a little misleading sometimes we're led to believe that god had to pay a debt to satan and that's that's not what happened at all how is it that he he canceled our debt and and who was this debt owed to and who who paid it and 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 who received who, who received this payment Notice what he says. He cancels verse 14, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What what is he saying there? And what is is important for us to understand? There was a debt that we owed that we could not pay. Well, who, what is that debt? And who do we owe it to? The payment is not owed to Satan. The phrase legal demands shows that it's God's righteousness that required that sin be condemned and the sinner be judged. Read that verse again. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Legal demands now speaks of a legal uh, legal phrase, right? Talking about court, it's talking about law, it's, it's talking about what has to be satisfied in, other, in, in, in order for us to be free from our debt. So God is saying there is a debt that human beings owe that has some consequences. If you can't pay the debt or you pay the debt and there's, there, there's that consequence upon you and there is a legal demand what does the legal demand speak of it it speaks of God's righteousness God in his righteousness has to deal with wrong and with sin against him and so he has a requirement to satisfy his righteousness to deal with wrongdoing anybody who's a leader or anything, if, if you supervise employees at work, if you're a parent at home, you notice that when you have a rule or a law and you require that of one child, guess what? You gotta be consistent with that with all your children. Because they're gonna remind you, wait a minute. How come I had to do this but so-and-so didn't have to do this? That ain't fair. That ain't right. And so a legal demand means that there needs to be some consistency and fairness about what this requirement and what the consequences are. God's righteousness requires that sin be dealt with. He can't just excuse sin for some and then punish sin for others. So how does God deal with this requirement? As a righteous God, he has to be consistent in his justice and in his judgment. And so it says he canceled the record of debt. Now, how can God cancel debt and cancel it for some and and not for others? And and how does this, in fact, deal with Satan in his domain? See, the Bible tells us Satan is called the accuser, isn't he? And we also know from the Bible, the history of Satan, that there is no remedy for Satan. You know he knows that? He is doomed, he is condemned, and he will never be cleared of the charge against him. That's something that's clear in Scripture, and that's something that is a reality to him. And, And that's probably why he's spoken of as the accuser. He hates mankind and accuses mankind so what, what satan is basically doing is he says you know god i hate your creation all that you've created and i'm going to do everything in my power to destroy them but he can't just overpower god and destroy but so what he tries to do is work within god's system to bring destruction to us he says god no wait a minute you judge me for sin. You know, Satan w- w- was judged by God and and, and 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 condemned eternally. He says, you judge me for sin, but these little folks that you created, they're little sinners. Aren't you going to judge them? Isn't that what your word says? They must be judged for their sin. Isn't there a legal tem- demand then, God, to... to condemn and judge your creation the answer to that is yes there is how can you judge one and not judge another there is judgment it is demanded by god's righteousness and satan in essence says you know what i'm going to see to it if i gotta be punished if I'm condemned, I'm going to see to it that I draw all that I can. And he's pointing a finger at me and at you. And he's saying, see, they sinned. You know what? Satan is right. In fact, God agrees with him on that. The Bible is full with the understanding that all have sinned. There is none righteous. There's none that's able to stand up against God's judgment because in the back of that judgment is Satan himself saying condemn him God would say well what charges and it's very easy (laughs) for Satan to present a case to condemn me and to condemn you in fact each and every one of us stand condemned before God so the dilemma is how do any of us get out of that judgment how do how do any of us get that debt cleared from our record? Notice he, he uses that phrase, God canceled the record of, of debt that stood against us. There is a, a, a charge of wickedness of sinfulness that stands against us that we can't get past. And Satan is, is quick to remind us and to remind God that this condemnation is sure and it must be applied. God's righteousness fully agrees with that. And so we, as human beings, are in a dilemma. There is no rescuing. There, there is no remedy for us apart from God. And when he does that remedy, is something that has to be done. See, God doesn't just wave a magic wand and say, I clear your debt. In fact, he tells us what had to happen so our debt will be cleared. This is so important because it is essential to the gospel. People think that forgiveness means you just speak forgiveness over someone and they are cleared and forgiven. We even have that in our legal sense is that a person can be pardoned and, 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 and we wrongfully understand that and therefore we wrongfully apply that in the spiritual sense. When God pardons our sin, when he clears the the, the debt, the record of debt that stands against us, it's not just a speaking, it's not just uh, 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 what he says, but it's what he does that makes it happen so that Satan has no word of accusation against anybody who's been cleared this way. What does he do? It says in the end of verse 14, This is set aside nailing it to the cross there is something unique about the cross that allows God to clear the record of debt that is against you and I what the writer is saying here you need to understand the, the value of the cross the debt is on and against us Satan is is sure to point the finger at us God's righteousness identifies us as condemned already and God does something that even Satan didn't understand when he did it it says this he nailed to the cross what he did is he took our debt and he pinned it and nailed it to the cross you know, it's not uncommon for criminals to be identified with the crime that they committed. You know, we, we, think, it, we think it's unfair today, but uh, every, every now and then we have a rare occurrence where a judge will, will deem that, that a person who's done a violation wear a label, wear a sign on themselves and have to walk publicly and declare that, hey, I committed this crime. It's interesting when you talk uh, when you talk to to people in jail and you ask them. You know they have a way of speaking, and they don't normally say what they did. They say what they're in jail for, and they even ask the question that that, that way: "What you in for?" What needs to be asked is: "What did you do? What crime did you?" If we want to be r- real and we want to be honest, we say. What crime did you do? Nobody says I I was a murderer. They say, yeah, they got me in for shooting this man. They got you in for shooting this man. That's no admission of wrong in that statement. I don't say I did it. That's what they said, and that's what they used evidence to charge against me. And that that way of thinking is is so dominant in our society is to take the blame off of ourselves. But the blame... Belongs on us. In fact, like I said, what they would do is often put the charge and tie it to the person, or in this case, label it on the cross. They say what the charge is against that individual. And that's what they did with Jesus. And it says, God is saying he took the label and the sin and he nailed that to the cross. Jesus is representing all who will come to trust in him. Not all of mankind, because not all trust in Jesus. But God is saying for those who come to trust in Jesus, their sin, their wrong, their entire record of debt is nailed to the cross and labeled. Jesus, Jesus is looked at as the fornicator. Jesus is looked at as the murderer. Jesus is looked at as the idolater. Jesus is looked at as the sinner that you and I am. And that label is placed on him, and he takes that all the way to the cross. And there's something, there's a transaction that happens at the cross. It says, because of what happens at the cross, God the Father is able to delete or to cancel the record of debt that was against us because he has placed that debt on Jesus, and Jesus has paid for it. Now, we've heard that before, and we need to hear that because that is the gospel. Why is it so significant? As I said before, God doesn't just say, okay, I'm in a good mood, I forgive all of mankind for their sin. God never does that. What he does is, he applies the sin of those who are willing to trust in the Savior. He applies their sin to Jesus Christ. And he says, those who are trusted in Jesus, their sin is paid for as if I took it and hung it on Jesus. In other words, an act had to be committed to make this transaction happen. You know, we live in an electronic age, and we just think, you know, you just hit a keyboard, and boom, it goes away. So we're talking to people on the phone. You say, well, you know, I know I owe my light bill, and I know it's $350, and I know I was supposed to pay $55 a month, but why can't you just go on your little computer and act like it doesn't exist? And just hit the keyboard and make it go away and make my balance zero. And we kind of have this notion that that's what God does. Some some, uh, a painless operation that has no connection to real reality. And we, if, if that's the way we think about salvation, we walk away and we say, my debt is clear and I, I'm good. And I have no obligation. It didn't cost me anything. It didn't cost the company anything. They just wiped it out. In our minds, we think these companies are so big. They got so much money. They ain't going to notice with this little bit of a bill that I got that it ain't paid. Why don't they just eat it? And we think of God in that same way. We fail to realize that God takes sin seriously. He doesn't just speak and wipe away any debt in no way does he do that what he does is places the debt of those who are willing to trust in Christ on the Lord Jesus Christ I also want you to realize so since this is this isn't just some magical wand that happens this process does not happen without the Lord Jesus Christ in fact you could look in all of history and you say, is there any man who can stand in the place of Christ that could pay for all, of, all of, of mankind's sin or those who would trust in Christ? Can they pay for that sin? Well, what does it take to pay for that sin? It takes a pure, sinless one, one who never sinned in his own, ne- never has sin applied to his own record and it's completely at, at, at one with God to be able to pay that debt. In all of history, there is no individual that qualifies to do that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you think that you can be cleared of your debt by being good from now on, even being a part of the church, even giving money to the church, even making a promise that from now on your life belongs to god and you're going to give him in other words you you're going to live in such a way that qualifies you to be cleared of your debt you're wrong it's impossible you cannot do it because in that thinking you're doing it apart from christ and you don't need christ in that equation but god says wait a minute Mm -mm. all that i do when i make someone alive is fully wrapped into what Jesus did on the cross, and if you eliminate Jesus out of that out of that equation, you have no uh, clearance. Your debt is still owed, and your sin, sin stands on a record against you. Christ is the key to what God does in canceling debt. Can wrap it up all in there. Christ is the key to what God does in canceling our debt. It cannot be done by God apart from Christ. He does not do it in any other way. What is the means by which God cancels debt? It is through Christ on the cross. His death on the cross is what pays the debt of those who come and trust in him. That needs to be, it needs to be in Grained in our thinking, it is the the center of the gospel itself, Christ. In this whole letter, we said it's it's centric is that it centers on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is it is His act on the cross that God uses to pay our debt, and it is the one and only act that He uses. Verse fourteen again by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. Now let's speak for a moment. How does this accomplish what's said in verse 15? He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it, in the cross or in Christ himself. How did God triumph over these rulers? You can picture Satan as the accuser saying, look, there is a great debt that each sinner has and you cannot you cannot just speak over them and wipe this clean you must judge them God agrees I must judge them my righteousness demands that I deal with sin and then he says I have sent my son to qualify and to make the payment on their behalf again a payment isn't owed to Satan a payment is owed to God to, to satisfy his righteous requirement. And so Jesus on the cross is making that payment for each one who would trust in him, and God is satisfied in that payment, and what he says is that that sin has been paid for. Basically, Satan, get off their back. You know, it's interesting. Satan wants to destroy all of God's creation. And he thought he had a legal way to do that. He can he can bank on God's righteousness and his judgment and say you must destroy this entire civilization, this entire this entire creation. He goes about tempting, he goes about drawing the world into sin and and he's done all that he can throughout all of history to bring destruction upon God's creation, both physically and spiritually. He's about that. He continues that. And in essence, he stands in the courtroom of God and says, look at what your creation has done. They have violated every rule and every guideline and principle that you have set. And God says, yes, they have. But (laughs) but how does God stay true to his righteous requirement and yet rescue and save mankind through the cross through what Jesus has done on the cross it says in verse 15 he disarmed the rulers and authority by triumphing over them he triumphed he gained the victory in fact he destroyed their argument and their their strongest way of doing that of bringing mankind down he destroyed that by having the remedy for man's sin and he did that in the Lord Jesus Christ and in fact he did it in such a way that brought shame to Satan how is that Satan thought Hmm. this is the one, this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, this this Jesus is a special individual. He's the one. I need to get rid of him because he's going to have a ton of people following him. And he's going to lead them to righteousness and lead them to God. I need to destroy this leader while I can. Let me do it as quickly as I can. And let me eliminate this Redeemer. And God used Satan's process of eliminating Redeemers to, 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 to actually bring Jesus to the cross as payment for sin and when he was killed on that cross God raised him up again never to have to face death again he had power then over death and he had power over Satan you see Satan points a finger and f- Satan knows something else is that after death, death death is that final act whereby once man crosses over that he can't, he can't redo anything he knows that. He says, if I can just kill that Redeemer, I'll be done. He actually killed the Redeemer. <laughs> but wrongfully, in his thinking, he thought it was over. That was just the beginning. God raised him from the dead. The payment of sin was made, the victory over not only sin but also of death, which was was man's, man's greatest enemy because of sin— Death made it final, and he could do nothing more on his behalf to, to, to enhance his, his relationship with God. It is final. But Jesus says, I'm raising, I'm being raised from the dead. I paid for man's sin, and I have rescued him from sin, and I bring to him life, eternal life. Satan's doom was sealed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame. He triumphed over them in Christ, and he did that through the cross. Recognize that apart from Jesus and apart from the cross, we have no salvation. Would you also recognize that all the praise in your life needs to be in Christ and what he has done on your behalf? Your trust in Christ shows that. You can trust nothing or no one else apart from Christ and what he did on the cross. That is the path and the only path to salvation. It's the path that every individual must come through in order to be right with God, in order to have life with God. There is no other way, no other life in any other way, in any other means, except through trusting in Christ. And he explains that this trusting in Christ is not just a one-time thing you do and you walk away. It is something that acknowledges that God is ruled over your life. And it's something that is good and that you embrace and you begin to follow. That's why he says, as we mentioned already in verse 6, As you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Your life now belongs to Christ. And you begin to live faithfully in obedience to what God has said. I encourage you to think through what God has spoken. Think, think through his gospel to embrace the Lord Jesus and to walk in him constantly. That means, you know, you can't wake up tomorrow and, 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 and say, I have no obligation to God or I have no there's no consequence in my daily life for what God has done in Christ for me. There is. I belong to Christ. All of my life is because of him. And so I live and I serve him. And guess what? I do it willingly. Because I recognize he's the only way for me to have right relationship with God. He's the only way for me to be rescued from my sin. He's the only way for me to enjoy the life God intends for me to have. He's the only way for me to have victory over Satan, who's my greatest foe. He's the only way for me to have my sins forgiven. He's the only way for, for, for me to have peace with God. Father, we thank you uh, for your word today. And we pray, Lord, as we walk through passages such as this, would you give us that appreciation for what you accomplished by canceling our debt and how you did that in the death of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. We glory, we marvel at that, we worship and praise you because of that, and we wanna live for you, to please you because of the great salvation that you've accomplished. Lord, if there's anyone here today that didn't understand that and and now is just amazed at your truth amazed at your love and how you would accomplish that for them as you speak to their heart right now may they just submit to you right now may they say to you thank you greatest now in jesus name